0: Take advantage of the Spectator U.S.'s special election offer. Go to spectator.us slash electionoffer and subscribe to get three months free access to the Spectator U.S. website and our new app available on the Apple and Google Play stores. Make sure you're getting the very best coverage and commentary in the run up to November 3rd. Find out more at spectator.us slash electionoffer. Hello and welcome once again to the Americano podcast. I am Matt McDonald, guest hosting for Freddie Gray throughout the 2020 virtual democratic convention. I am joined by Matt Purple, who is a senior editor at the American Conservative. We're going to be discussing the last four nights of the DNC, which we've been both watching from our respective homes. Hi, Matt. Thanks for joining. Uh, Hey, Matt. Good to be with you. So my question is kind of framed more by the speakers over the, that we had over the past four days, and it seems melodramatic to ask, is this the end of American democracy? It's it-
1: not you saying that, that's them saying that. That's the thing. We should make that clear.
0: Exactly. So uh, the reason I asked that question, just a a few snatches of some quotes from the last four nights that we've heard tonight in his acceptance speech for the Democratic nomination. Joe Biden said democracy is on the ballot. Uh, Earlier this week, we heard Sally Yates, who's the former acting attorney general, say the future of our democracy is at stake. John Kerry said of Joe Biden, he knows you can't spread democracy around the world if you don't practice it at home. Bernie Sanders on the first night said uh, we need to a movement of people who are prepared to stand up and fight for democracy and decency and against greed, oligarchy and bigotry. And then, of course, former President Barack Obama said that's what that's what's at stake right now, our democracy. So, Matt, I suppose my question for you is with this vote that we're having on November 3rd, is is this vote the final nail in the, in the coffin of American democracy?
1: Yes, it's all, you know, dictatorship and Francoism from here on out. Um, <laughs> it, which, first of all, that, that's a dumb quote, isn't it, right? Is democracy on the ballot? If there is a ballot, then there is a democracy. It, it just seems like kind of, a, I don't know if it's a tautology or just there's a problem with the meta there, but it's a bad quote. And and also, yeah, this didn't just start with Trump. I think this goes way back in the, the Democratic Party's DNA where they have this tendency to associate things they like with democracy and if you don't want to do things they like then you're opposing democracy and they'll extend that over you know not just their idea of the way that you should be able to vote or you know the the franchise and so on but also their economic plans economic justice their you know police brutality racial justice all these things they all get put under this giant umbrella term of democracy and it's a convenient little trick isn't it because then you can claim that if you're opposing their agenda then you're standing against democracy itself which they then equate with america so you're standing against america itself it's kind of a nice little gun to your head i thought the biden speech tonight i thought was very good i thought it was much more impressive than the you know vastly overrated obama speech personally right but it it was darker in tone than i think sometimes it's getting credit for i
0: mean it was really it was a very stark speech i thought my one criticism of him as someone who did a minor in film studies at university is that I think they got the camera angle slightly off so that you could tell that the auto cue is literally just 10 degrees to his right. The, I agree with you. The speech was powerful, fantastically written. It would have been even more powerful if it was delivered straight down the barrel. But the content of it, I thought was good. And I think, you know, thematically, you can tell what the Democrats are trying to do with this convention. The Biden campaign slogan is build back better i don't know what you think about that as a slogan
1: triple triple b yeah
0: triple b i think it's terrible and they could have come up with a few other better slogans like the informal slogan i think of this democratic national convention is joe biden is a decent man like that's the message which they're trying to communicate through every infomercial speech and appearance that they're giving right
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, I did not know you were a minor in film studies. So I feel like I have to defer to your expertise (laughs) on this and all things going forward. I'm like a little nervous in your presence now, (laughs) but, uh, but no, yeah. I mean, I thought, um, the triple B's build America back. I, I think they're, they're primarily more so than I thought they were trying to sell rather than an agenda, the candidate. I mean, they really honed in on Biden for the last part of the convention, it's not going to be like with the Republican convention, which is going to be Trump all the time, because Trump is such a personalist, and there's a little bit of a cult of the personality going on there. You know, it, it was about broader themes, certainly, but really, they did zoom in on Biden. And I think, I think it was an appealing story. I, you know, somebody who's known that much loss, somebody who, you know, is, is kind of an Irish Catholic, uh, blue collar success story. And, you know, I, I think something to remember, too, is that he doesn't know issues as well as maybe Barack Obama, for example. He doesn't know data maybe as well as Barack Obama. But in terms of what I think is an equally important form of political intelligence, which is people knowledge, you know, kind of social IQ, his is off the charts. He's a genuinely talented retail politician. He knows how to talk to voters. He knows how to, you know, go to Republicans and say, I'll give you this in return for that, kind of the the horse trading that you have to do when you're in the Senate. I almost wonder if he was on the campaign trail, if he'd be doing a bit better right now because he could be talking to people. He also occasionally yells at voters. So there's that. That that can be a problem, too. Yeah. But um, but I do respect him in that way. I think he's a talented politician. And, and I thought that that was out in, in flying colors tonight for all the rest of the ridiculousness and the absurdity that was on display.
0: Well, I think it's interesting because obviously we have a fairly condensed sense of what progressive America looks like and what, you know, liberals and leftists in America wants, which is entirely honed down by how they act on social media. And in general, you know, through that, through that lens, you see stereotypical young left wing America can't see a positive aspect of history. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, that's what the Democrats were trying to present with Joe Biden, like, often uh, in the primary campaign, you know, you're dragging up, negative things that well things that are perceived negative that joe biden has said about you know working with segregationist senators and things that he's voted on and said in the past and you know the only reason you're dragging up history is to beat the candidate with it but in this convention it was the democrats opportunity to kind of Remind the you know few voters who are probably watching this this convention that it's like hang on if you believe in women's issues well Joe Biden was the guy who eight years ago was leading the It's On Us initiative and was the leading voice about you know sexual assault on campus uh, he was and they, they would take and bring up these you know if you care about gun violence Joe Biden was the person in the Senate who led the uh, assault weapon ban in 1994 is they actually used his record in a way which. You know, if you just followed the primaries and toned and down on that, you would think, oh, the only, the only reason you'd be talking about the past is because you want to bludge and with it.
1: I think you make a really essential point, and that is that we were just having a cultural revolution about two months ago, right? We were tearing down statues. We were saying uh, th- th- there's no such thing as progress. It's the past has to measure up to the yardstick of today, the moral yardstick of today, or it has to come down to the point of, you know, getting rid of Thomas Jefferson if we have to. And it was interesting to watch because that was not the approach of the convention. The approach of the convention, which actually Barack Obama said right at the beginning of his speech, was that, you know, we started out with a flawed idea of a country, but also with the constitution and with the framework to try to make it better. And that's what we've been doing. That's what we've been fighting for ever since. And really that process, that progress is worth it and and ought to be embraced, it was a real contrast, I thought, to what, you know, we were hearing out of universities and sociology departments and uh, on Twitter in a lot of cases, even just a couple months ago. And uh, there was a a quote in Gretchen Whitmer's speech that I thought summed up the convention pretty well. She said, uh, by the way, Gretchen Whitmer is not somebody who should be front and center for the Democratic Party. Um, I I don't think she's going to, you know, help them with very many optics battles there. But nonetheless, I thought this quote was pretty good. She said, That's the story of this great nation. Action begets action. Progress begets progress. You know, this idea of a a flawed union that is constantly trying to become uh, more perfect, that is trying to make itself better. That's the narrative, I think, anyway. It is, they're they're embracing that old school idea of progress, albeit at a time when a lot of left-wing activists don't even want to fathom the fact that, you know, there were racists in the Senate as recently as, you know, 40 years ago.
0: Right. So does that then make it harder going forward for the Trump campaign in this election to say the Democratic Party and Joe Biden's Democratic Party are, you know, socialists who hate America?
1: Possibly. Yeah, I think it could. I think that if Joe Biden is elected, there's going to be a kind of simmering going on with the left. I think they're going to support him generally and back some of his initiatives. But I think they're going to feel unsatisfied And as good as Biden may end up being in terms of getting, you know, his ability to get policy passed and so on, I don't think he's going to resolve these major culture war issues of our time, especially, you know, among the radical left, like we were talking about before. And uh, it's going to simmer. Maybe it'll hopefully go away. Some of it will be extinguished. But I'm not sure he has the power and the capability to really uh, work out a lot of these huge questions we're grappling with right now.
0: So next week, with the Republican National Convention coming up, where most of the speeches are going to be from Washington, some of the speakers who've been announced already for that kind of speak directly to that issue, as in it seems like the Republicans are going all out on the culture war. You've got Nick salmon speaking, who's the you know MAGA hat-wearing Covert and Catholic student, yeah. who was there as, you know, won, the light, won a uh, defamation case against the majority of the media, even in the US, for how he portrayed. You've got the St. Louis couple who were stood on their doorstep as the protesters were outside, heavily armed. Basically, the Republicans are just going to go the complete opposite route. And are they kind of just going to ignore whatever Joe Biden says he stands for and tell their own story, do you think? Or what do you think their play is going ahead to next week?
1: I'll tell you a reason I'm looking forward to the RNC and a reason I'm not. And the reason I'm looking forward to it is that this entire week, we've had it slammed in our face time and time again, how cool the Democrats are. And they can go and get Maggie Rogers to perform and Common will perform. <laughs> and who's the uh, the dreadful TikTok personality who is there tonight? Sarah, what's her name? I, I, Sarah Cooper.
0: Yeah, I hated that. I'm yeah, proud of
1: true. not knowing. Yeah, that was that was absolutely unbearable. You know, constantly reminded of how
0: she's gonna cut this, you saying that, and then lip sync to it.
1: She is, yeah. And then you'll
0: be destroyed <laughs> online for it.
1: <laughs> I, I need to, I need to break out at some point. I really do. it really <laughs> would be good for me. But, um, but yeah, yeah, and, and you know, just just in your face all the time. Whereas I think the Republicans are going to tell the stories of people who have gone viral either by accident or for reasons they didn't want to, or just normal people who have turned into internet celebrities for one reason or another. I think there'll be a, a more down-to-earth quality going on there. And uh, you know certainly a, a Nick Sandman is someone who I want to hear with. I think that's a, that's a really important story to tell. On the other hand, this would have been so easy eight months ago for the Republicans, right? It would have been just, uh, we needed to make America great again. Now we've made it great. The economy is booming, and we just need to tell that story and get that out there as loudly as we can. Sure. The problem is we're going to be seeing a lot of a video from city blocks on fire. We're going to be seeing a lot of footage of black masks in the streets and a lot of warnings about how this is what Democrats do to cities and this is the problem with liberalism. And the natural question that follows is, well, you've been in charge for four years. Why haven't you done something about this? Why haven't you managed to tie this up? Now, that's a bit of an unfair question. The president only has so much power, even though we kind of ascribe magical abilities to him. But he's going to have to somehow square the fact that all this chaos is erupting right now with the fact that he's also the elected president of the United States.
0: So you make an interesting point about this tightrope that the Trump campaign has to walk in terms of they want to blame the Democrats who run the cities for the unrest in the cities. But at the same time, Trump is the president and he hasn't done much to stop it. And he can't really claim that his hands are tied. The other thing which the Democrats are saying that where Trump has failed them when it comes to Governance is with the coronavirus and saying, well, look, if we'd had a coordinated nationwide federal response to the coronavirus in January, then the country's response to the virus would have looked different and significantly fewer people would have died.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a more compelling narrative. And, and again, we can we can judge all day how much culpability Trump actually bears. Uh, a lot of this was the bureaucracy's fault that was kind of beyond his reach. I'm sure you've gone over on this podcast many times uh, what Andrew Cuomo has done, you know, the, the many wrong moves that he's made. You know, a republic as big and as federalistic as, our, as ours, that you're going to have responsibility that's going to be spread out throughout the system. But... During an election, when there's one guy who you're really focusing on, it's very easy to be reductive and to just pin it all on him. And I think because the coronavirus is so nationally felt and because the pain is nationally shared, I think that's a more effective narrative for Democrats than is saying, uh, well, there's all this unrest and that's the fault of, of Democrats. Because most Americans don't live in cities. Most Americans will witness this on TV, but it's not really something that's affecting them personally. They don't live in Portland, They're not, you know, suffering as a result of that. The really urgent, you know, red alert threat right now is the coronavirus. And I think the Democrats are probably going to have a messaging advantage, at least if you're you set it up the way that you
0: just did. Yeah. So why haven't the Republicans come up with a health care plan in three years?
1: (laughs) Well, the (laughs) the last one they came up with was awful. I mean, it was this who bears the most responsibility for not repealing Obamacare? Probably Paul Ryan, because when push came to shrub and, and Trump said, okay, where's your plan? Paul Ryan coughed up this total hairball and it was, you know, everybody hated it. Yeah. It's, it's a good question. And uh, I think it's uh, Amber Athey at the spectator has asked at least a couple times, uh, where is the Trumpism of 2020? Where is the actual agenda? Yeah, You know, the the big uh, policy, the and beefing workers' wages and so on. It's a very good question.
0: Yeah. You kind of touched on this as well. Early in the convention, I was watching MSNBC's coverage of it um, because I'm a masochist. I'm so sorry. And, and earlier on in the co- convention, the Democrats had lots of celebrity appearances. They had musical interludes. And Senator Marco Rubio tweeted complaining about the number of celebrities that the Democrats had. And Joy Reid, who is the host, made a comment about Democrats versus Republicans, and they said, and they said, "Oh, the Republicans complaining about celebrities. Well, that's because the Democrats can get them." And they like laughed about it. Is that a selling point that's going to make anyone in a swing state vote for the Democrats? The the sheer number of celebrities, the fact that you know it's compared by eva longoria or julie louis dreyfus and that billy ice is playing do you think that's winning any votes
1: i think there's some young people who might like to see that you know i mean who watch veep or uh, listen to maggie rogers whatever the case might be i think we can talk about the quality of the celebrities that showed up i mean they have all of hollywood at their disposal and this was the best that they were able to do is eva longoria and uh Julia Louise Dreyfus, I did love the the tag team between her and Andrew Yang at the beginning. There was like a, do you remember that at the beginning of tonight? There was like a throw. It's
0: burned, it's burned into my memory, yeah. Between Andrew <laughs> Yang
1: and Julia Louise Dreyfus, that was just incredible. I, I never thought I would see that combo in my life. And, but, you know, I, I don't think that your average American who's trapped inside because of COVID, worried about his job, uh, you know, might have seen the unrest on his TV, maybe anxious about other aspects of his future, is going to turn on the Democratic National Convention and go, ooh, they're playing Bruce Springsteen. And that's going to be, that's going to push him over the edge, you know?
0: The worst Bruce Springsteen song. Rise up. (laughs) Every 25 seconds, that was, rise up. My thing is I listen, you know, I listen to music while I work every day. I'll listen to Billie Eilish fairly often, but I'll listen, if I'm listening on YouTube and an ad comes up before the song starts, then I skip the ad. And basically the Democratic National Convention didn't give us the chance to skip the ad because the vast majority of it was infomercial based and you know, just all hosted on video chat, and it was quite hard to them to generate, I think, a sense of passion, right?
1: Yeah, I think so. And, and you've been to CPAC and some of these other big political conventions that they have, yeah. And there's always B roll footage that's running in the background on the big screens for everybody to watch, even as they're filing in and out and not really paying attention. It's kind of background noise, and this was the background noise, like the background noise became the convention, it was just this kind of B-roll stuff that you never usually see, but that if you're actually at the Democratic National Convention itself is going to be on the monitors in between the speeches and everything else. It was just inflicted on the rest of us this time. And I'm not gonna say it was totally bad. There's a lot of sneering on Twitter about how the Democrats control all of Hollywood and this is the best production they could put on I think it's very difficult to try to come up with something, basically a giant eight hour long Zoom meeting yeah. where you have to sell a political candidate. I, that's extraordinarily difficult to do. I think it probably could have turned out worse. It probably could have been better as well.
0: And of course, if, if they'd pre-taped all of it, it would have looked better, but everyone would have said, oh, they can't deliver a proper speech and it looks fake.
1: Precisely. I think you're right. I thought some parts of it, like the going state to state for the delegates, You know, the, the guy in Kansas in the middle of the field and the guy in Rhode Island on the dock, you know, saying, bragging about his calamari. I thought that was charming. I thought it was a wonderful, kind like of cheesy American pageant, the kind of thing I really like about this country. There were other times when they were just throwing back and forth between random people, you know, complaining about how victimized they were. And it just got kind of schizophrenic after a while. It was difficult to follow.
0: Sure. So by the time people listen to this, which I think will be on Friday, there will be 74 days to the election. Joe Biden, I mean, if you care about national polls, I don't. But if you care about national polls, Joe Biden is cleaning the houses with Donald Trump at the moment. If you look at the swing state polls, Biden's ahead in a lot of the key swing states. What do you think Donald Trump and the Republican Party can do next week at the Republican National Convention to eat into that lead? I, I
1: made it almost through the interview before you stumped me. I, I, It's a really good question because we're dealing with such titanic factors that even under, I, I think, the most an almost perfect president would be somewhat beyond his control. I mean, a a pandemic and everything. I think if he wants to dig into Biden's lead a little bit, he needs to reestablish that aura of competence that he had in 2016. Mm -hmm. You know, when people, he used to come out and say, only I could fix it. Only I could fix it. That particular line isn't going to sell this time, but I think he just needs to convince people that he can fix it. He needs to go back and and brag about his business successes. He needs to talk about how good the economy was before, uh, you know, some of the economic measures he passed that worked. He needs to go back and I think tap into that vein and get people to think that, yes, times are bad right now, but they really can get better. And also, you know, Kamala Harris as being a radical authoritarian, which is basically who she is, somebody who's unafraid to use the power of her office to go after gun owners, to go after pro-lifers, to go after you know, anybody who gets on the wrong end of her, really, uh, you know, somebody who is just ruthless with a gavel, portray her that way. I, I think her numbers are fairly underwater. And I think Biden is a fairly strong candidate, fairly strong politician, at least coming off of the convention, he came off that way. I think Harris is probably weaker. And that might be the Republicans in right there.
0: Well, we'll have to wait to find out. Matt, thank you again so much for joining us. I hope to see you next week at the Republican National Convention if we can meet and shake hands after they're sanitized and wear face masks.